Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Stripped by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. I am your host, Steph Sia, aka Kimchi, aka Sia. People call me a lot of things, and I am the host of the show, so you listen to me every single Sunday. I bring on cool different guests on every week in the... Uh, topic of sex work and everything that is related to it. I am a digital content creator as well as former sugar baby and an exotic dancer here in Vancouver, Canada. But for this week, we are going all the way to Florida to speak with my friend and person who I met just recently, I guess over the past year, I think that we've known each other. I have Alicia Armstrong of Florida State University, who is a professor there and who has gotten me to speak to her class, which I am super, super, super honored. I mean, like, that's like how we met. Yeah, Yeah. it is how we met. So you had slid into me into my Facebook DMs and reached out to me and I was like, wow, this is really exciting. This is really, really cool. And you found out through me through another um podcast uh friends of mine and I am so excited for you to finally come onto the show and speak about your expertise in social work being a sex educator uh everything basically so Alicia are you there (laughs) I am here can you hear me you are great you were wonderful okay good deal good deal yeah you know thank you so much for having me on I it was kind of a a just shot in the dark last year when I was trying to figure out how to make my classes that had been face-to-face for so long interesting in a digital format. And I thought, you know, we need to speak to somebody who is an expert in sex work or knows way more about sex work than I do from a, you know, I know from a educational standpoint and from working with sex workers as clients and in therapy mm-hmm. but I needed somebody that was that could spice up my class a little bit and <laughs> I just reached out to you and it you were able to speak to my class over the summer they loved you this was last <laughs> summer 2020 yes and then again in the fall you were very gracious to do that and your influence has helped me transform kind of my digital remote learning and make it fun for the students who are used to face-to-face. It was just such a huge change. So I appreciate that. And it was just so funny how it came together. I had no idea whether or not you'd say yes or no. Um, (laughs) I guess it's kind of similar to when you're looking for guests for your show. If you don't know them personally, you just kind of take a shot in the dark and reach out. Oh my gosh. It's the exact same thing. Like I just slide into people's DMs. I reach out to them Twitter, reach out to them Reddit. I don't know like 80% of my guests. Like, <laughs> but it, it's really cool, and it's it's cool that it's come for full circle. Yeah, absolutely. And I had no idea if he would even respond, but I thought, you know, what's the worst that could happen? I waste five minutes, and I still listen to her podcast like it's no big deal. But he did respond very quickly, and I was I was happy for that. So yeah, it has come full circle. Yay. And I'm really really honored to be on today. Um, I know that you were able to kind of put these topics out for some of your listeners and got some really good feedback on things that they wanted to hear. 
which we'll we'll get into in a little bit. But I just kind of, kind of wanted to give an overview of myself. Yes, um, please do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, like you mentioned, I'm here in Florida, so Florida, USA. And I've been actually I'm from Florida. I've been here my whole entire life. Oh wow. Um, I know, but I have traveled the world, so I feel like I I know a little bit about <laughs> different places. Yes. Um. And, but I always, you know, somehow come back to, to Florida and in Tallahassee where I live, there's several major universities and I'm actually part of what I do during my day is I'm an adjunct professor of social work at Florida State University's College of Social Work. Yes. Um, I've done that for about four years now. Very interesting path that I didn't really see myself taking in life. Uh, oh. to be more of an educator. It was an, an incredible opportunity that was given to me. And I just kind of take, you know, got, um, was offered that job and kind of ran with it. And the class that they offered me at first was, it is a class, an elective class for social workers and actually other majors have it as a required course, but it's, it's human sexuality. So that's where being a sex educator comes in. And I had to, you know, they asked me to teach that and I asked them to give me a day to think about it rather than saying yes right away because, oh my gosh, what I've worked with different types of sexual trauma and sexual advocacy for like 10 years at that point. Mm -hmm. And I thought, how am I going to, am I going to be a sex educator? But actually... (laughs) It was an incredible opportunity of growth for me to really study the the concepts and they allowed me a lot of freedom to kind of make the course what I thought it should be. And it, it gets tweaked every single semester. I try to make it better and um, in some ways, but basically being a sex educator, you provide instructions, um, in my case, to college university students mm-hmm. on a variety of issues um, related to all aspects of human sexuality. Yes. So could be things like sexual activity. What what does that mean to people? What would that mean looking at it, not just a personal perspective, but from a clinical perspective and from what your clients would think? Right. Um, sexual reproduction. We talk a lot about consent. We talk about birth control, STIs, talk about the history of sex education. Mm -hmm. And then the bigger concepts of gender, um, gender as a construct. We talk about um, sexuality and the field of sex work. And we, we talk a lot about macro level or big level issues pertaining to all of that, like policies and laws and just different issues. And I try to do a really good job of not just looking at it from a United States perspective, but Mm -hmm. really perspective from around the world in different countries and what they do. So um, that's kind of what it means to be a sex educator. And I am very happy to be teaching that class again this summer and this fall coming up in fall we'll be back to in person I believe, oh, wow. classes, which will be yeah oh my god um we're figuring it out I know can you believe that I can't because like okay like earlier before we started recording I was like we're on our third wave of lockdown here in Vancouver Canada and you're like things have been wide open for like almost a year now in Florida so yeah. that's crazy you know it really is and 
I want to be careful what I say for for just a political uh, the political nature that is Florida. Mm-hmm. You know, you hear all the time jokes about on social media and jokes in general about Florida man did this, Florida right. woman did this, um, Florida government is doing this. So I need to, I want to, especially since I'm affiliated with a public university, I want to be careful with what I say. Of course. Um, but I will say that the compared to my friends in other countries, just like you mentioned, you're on your third lockdown. Mm-hmm. Whereas we have been... Um, different cities and different counties have done things a little bit differently. Yeah. Um, we haven't had a whole statewide curfew system and different phased approach of, of lockdown for almost a year in yeah. Florida. And wild. Um, it's just different. It is, yeah. it is completely wild. And I talked to my friends in the UK and they're similar to, to what you described. Yeah. And they'll see me out doing things safely, things outside, like outdoor music things. And they're like, did COVID just go away in Florida? What, what is going on? (laughs) We're all all, like kind of paired with our people together and we're outside and we're we're just kind of doing the best we can to, to get by. And it's just so, so different. And, different areas of the world right now yeah absolutely and like I was speaking to you earlier too that like I know a few of my friends that have gone to Miami and and basically other parts of Florida to work because it is open and they need to work so yeah and like also I want to note that like COVID fatigue is a thing and Uh. we are so well I don't want to say we but me personally speaking, I, I am so tired <laughs> of, of COVID and I just really cannot wait and get to the point where Florida is where things are going to be open and fully functioning and people are going to be healthy again. So fingers crossed. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I know um, vaccine protocols and, and things can be controversial. Yes. Um, they, in Florida, they've kind of phased out. They've, they've had a phased approach to who can be eligible to get the vaccine. And of course that's a very personal choice. Yes. Um, but thinking, you know, linking it back to education in the U S specifically, I'm not sure about other, other like higher level world. institutions over the world, mm-hmm. but you know, some of, I have, I just read the other day, a handful of schools that are requiring students to have their, their full COVID vaccine series, depending on which, which brand they get um, before they can come back to campus. Oh I don't know what Florida State is going to be doing, but it's just, it's interesting to, to see. So when I talk about face-to-face classes in fall, I don't know what that's going to look like. Yeah. I don't know if I'm going to get a bigger classroom and we're still going to all have to wear masks mm-hmm. or are we going to wear masks and have a small, have a, have a big classroom where there's less people and we're all six feet apart. Yeah, I don't know how that's gonna look. Yeah, it's gonna be a different kind of trans um, transitory period, for sure. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> it's yeah. like relearning. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but I think I got a little bit off topic with COVID. But um, well, that's okay. Kind of, it's kind still of bring it back. Uh, yeah, bring it back. <laughs> yeah, well, bring, let me bring it back. Let me bring it back. I get off topic a lot. <laughs> As so, do I. No, no, you're good. <laughs> I'm an enabler. I think that makes for the best conversations. It does. <laughs> yes. But to 
bring it back to some more about my bio. So mm-hmm. we've talked about teaching. I've been a practicing social worker for over 10 years. I went to oh, wow. actually went to Florida State University and got my master's in both social work and public administration. Never really did anything with the public administration component, but I've worked on and off in social work for that whole time, um, including things like victim advocacy, specifically sexual assault advocacy. Okay. And yeah, yeah. And then I started teaching and then I last year got more into the therapy component of my education and certifications where I could provide some online counseling support. We saw that with things changing, speaking of COVID, you know, just the huge mental toll it took on everybody. Oh, Um, yes. 100%. Yeah. Things just changed faster than we can adapt to change, I think, as, as people and as a society in general. And then some people's COVID didn't really have a whole impact on their lives. Like they they were able to still go to work and their income wasn't affected and really just things like mask mandates and places that they would normally frequent as patrons being closed was the main main component. But then there was lots of social things that yeah. they did with their friends. And that's huge for that's mental a, illness. That's yeah, huge. Big, big, big thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I think it kind of impacted all of us a little bit. And I really wanted to be able to use my training to give back to to the community and get out there and help in some ways. So I ended up going into private practice therapy counseling um, last year in addition to teaching. Oh, wow. Yeah, kind of came full circle. Lots of COVID personal changes for me. But I've I've really... um, really found that it just, life just kind of led me to where I need to be mm-hmm. at this point in time. So it's been really cool. It's been really cool to develop that and, and build some relationships with clients and in the community in general. Yeah. I, I think the work that you're doing is excellent. And the way you teach your students is also so profound and, and wonderful. Again, like we need, I keep saying on all, <laughs> on, on all my episodes, we need more change makers in the world and more people that are understanding of the work that we do here in in the sex industry. So thank you for all that you do for the greater community. It's truly, truly admirable. So (laughs) thank you. Thank you. I'm honored to be able to work in this field. Yeah, and and your specialty, I've just read online here, did a little bit of stalking um, (laughs) before we we recorded, but you specialize in domestic violence, sexual assault, self-harm, trauma and gender, and sexuality, and you have had so much experience, as you said, over the past 10 years working with individuals who've experienced a wide range of challenges, including PTSD, anxiety, depression, grief and loss, Pervasive illness, parenting, sexuality, and gender identity. That's a lot. <laughs> That's an incredible it amount. Is. It is. And, you know, it, as anybody studying to be a therapist or therapists know, you know, we kind of, as humans, we're very diverse in the issues that we, mm-hmm. that we experience in our lives. And so I've always found it best to take an approach where you specialize and, and get to learn and do certifications in different things so that you can have more a clientele that's that you're more well-versed in, in mm-hmm. dealing with. So things like sexual trauma, things like gender, 
and really being able to, to help people on their gender journey or likewise sexuality and the specter of sexuality. I found very useful for clinicians to kind of find a niche field, so to speak. And that's, yeah. that's kind of what I've been drawn to, some, somewhat organically, actually, to just oh. based on the jobs that I've, I've had and the mentors that I've had and, and even past experiences. A lot of people, one of the questions I always get asked is, what, what brought you into this field? Yeah. Why did you... Why did you choose to be a sex educator? Why did you choose to be a therapist? Why did you choose to be a social worker? And what I found with my students, and it's no different than when I was a student and trying to pick my major, (laughs) people who have had past struggles in their life, whether it's growing up in an unhealthy and toxic home, Mm -hmm. um, maybe intergenerational um, mental illnesses or untreated possibly different traumas that happen in people's lives, you know, once, once people go through that and see kind of figure out their resiliency and how they can cope and be, be okay as members of society, some of us are drawn to come back to that field and kind of get the education and the experience and the certifications and licensure to pay it forward. And that was very much my story. Um, So I, I've been through a lot of these things that I specialize in myself in life, which is absolutely, I want to just make it clear, it is not a requirement to mm-hmm. have been through the exact thing that a client you're trying to help has been through. Right. Um, I don't believe that at all. But for me, it's what drew me to this profession, as it did many of us. Wow. That's incredible. Like. And I'm so glad you asked that question because I was about to ask that question. Like, how did you get involved in all this? How did you get started? What's your story? So thank you so much for sharing that. And like yourself, like whether you're, whether or not you're in sex work, everyone has a history. Yes. Right. Whether it is sexual trauma or something that like to do with your family or maybe something at work. Or, or, or the work that you do, like, as sex workers in general, as a bubble. Like, we are faced with a lot of challenges, and it is very, very difficult for all of us to, like, let a bubble inside, which is, in my opinion, very, very unhealthy. So we need counselors, we need therapists, and people such as yourself to help us work through whatever history that we are dealing with. Absolutely. What I have seen with sex work and and some other fields but definitely with sex work there's really several prominent challenges that i see in the clients that i've had that that have been in the sex workers in the past or currently are Mm -hmm. and some of the things that i see are things like identity and yes concealing who they are like this is their career this is their profession Mm mm-hmm and so how how do they navigate life either passing by and I say passing in a in a using air quotes as a non sex worker if you need if you feel the need to conceal to conceal your job from friends some fr- from family mm-hmm. from potential people you're you're going to be dating and I know we're going to talk about that a little bit later yes. <laughs> but then there's the whole stigma that just is inherent mm-hmm. with sex work. People yes. have very strong opinions and often have very strong opinions that are um, 
not based in education. They're based <laughs> yes. on other things that have nothing to do. People form very quick opinions, I think, about sex workers without even really understanding what what it means and what goes into that. Exactly. Um, so there's just, it's stigmatized. But then that in taking that stigma that society has and even to, down to the fact of whether or not sex work should be considered a real job. And obviously yeah. sex work is work. Yes. But we hear these things and we grow up learning these social messages from, from all over. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes we don't even realize we're internalizing it. And that's yes. how we're starting to feel about ourselves. And that can cause huge impacts on, on people's mental wellness. And then the other thing that kind of, I was trying to think about the themes that I've had with different clients that have been involved in sex work. And the third one that kind of stuck out to me in my reflection is sometimes when you disclose your career to somebody, Mm -hmm. you have bad you have bad reactions from people or a negative experience. Oh, yes. So then what happens, us as humans, we try to control things the best that we can. Mm -hmm. And so how do we try to approach future situations by our past responses that we've gotten? And so then it inherently kind of becomes this expectation of rejection Mm. just based on what we do. And it's almost a negative self-fulfilling prophecy in some ways. And so just even looking at those things kind of as a therapy, mental wellness uh, processing can be really helpful. So those are some of the things that I've seen. And I know you, I'm sure there are lots more um, issues that that are kind of inherent to the nature of of sex work, connecting it to mental wellness. But those are just some of the few that I've seen that are pretty prominent. Yeah, it's really interesting that how, um, like how you identified those, I guess, not trends, not buckets, but I guess kind of buckets that you've seen in your clients. So I think that's incredibly insightful. And we're definitely going to go into more specific things. And the way that I've structured this episode is definitely really different than past episodes where I usually leave all audience's questions at the end. But there was just a lot that came in. So I've kind of shaped the episode around what came in and we'll be discussing those to- specific topics and then at the end there will be a Q&A session but um from okay. what I've received it's mostly from uh, I guess like therapy students or counseling students people okay. that are studying this so yeah I guess um we can kind of slowly go into it we'll start with the lighter topics first and then go into heavier topics if that's okay, okay. <laughs> Yeah, 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 I'm ready. Let's go into this. So I guess the first kind of questions, and I've tried to group them together as well as I saw fit, but it was more in the lines of disconnecting. So how do you disconnect work from personal? This person writes in sex equals money, and when I'm not making money, I'm just not that into it with my partner. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, you know, I thought that that was a very interesting question mm-hmm. um, when I first saw that one come in. Yeah. I, I will say that I think taking a step back and looking at it from even like a, from my profession, like therapy and um, being a sex educator, right? So when I interact with my interpersonal relationships, 
people know that that's what I do. Mm-hmm. My partner knows that that's that's what my profession is. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they just expect it to be how our conversations flow. Or because I'm a sex educator, I am like good at all things sex. And mm-hmm. like my bedroom skills are up to par. And so when I, yeah. when I read that, I thought, wow, this reminds me of experiences that I've had, though different experiences that I've had just relating to the world and my profession too. And I think what's really important to remember is with any relationship, communication is the key. So even letting your partner know that if if you are struggling to figure out how to connect to that person sexually, and I'm I'm going to kind of broaden the definition of sex or intimacy here um, to be not just things that you might do at work, but, you know, how that translates into things that expectations that your partner has. So oftentimes I have seen that, I know for, for me personally, again, and I'm not a sex worker, but just the nature of my business being so connected to sex in general, mm-hmm. um, people have expectations and yes. about you. And so I think communicating that to your partner that, hey, you know what, what I do at work is who I am at work. What I do at home is different than going into communication about your boundaries, your likes, mm-hmm. your dislikes, what your partner likes and what your partner dislikes, kind of what their expectations are. And knowing that everybody has a different level of desire. Yes. So whether or not it's connected to the, I'm not into sex if I'm not making money, mm-hmm. there has to usually, if people have a desire for sex, they get something out of it not just sexual pleasure, but maybe it's that social connection. Maybe it helps them feel closer to their partner. Maybe it helps them feel desired and, um, and just deepens the connection that they have with that person. So looking at it, not just as, okay, I'm not getting paid, so I'm not that into it, Mm -hmm. but what are the things that I do get from intimacy with my partner? Oh, and you know what I mean? Like yeah. not looking at just that money, yeah, but dollars. what, what do I receive? What, what am I getting emotionally? What am I getting? Uh, just the, the journey that you have with your partner and the closeness. Mm-hmm. That's a great that response. Sense? Yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent response. Thank you for that. I'm hoping that this is going to be useful to um, the person that wrote in. So Excellent, excellent. Uh, uh, <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, that yeah, because that can be a tricky one too. I mean, um, but the uh-huh. way that you have broken it down, I think it makes it really easily digestible and and also just really hones down to the point, like as you said, like going back to what your part, going back to your partnership with that person. What do they uh-huh. like? How do they make you feel? Basically, yeah. yeah. What do you get out of it? Even the most selfless people get something out of relationships Mm -hmm. with other people. That's, I mean, we, we inherently need people to fulfill some aspects, you know, to to fulfill something for us. So, Mm -hmm. and it could be that maybe you're a person whose sex drive is just naturally lower and the desire that you have for sex is lower. Mm -hmm. And so talking about that with your partner, I go back to communication, you know, figuring out what you like as far as intimacy 
and just spending time together, whether it's holding hands, whether it's cuddling and watching a movie, doesn't have to be anything that people would consider in the category of sex right. necessary to feel that right. closeness. So maybe you start, start, I don't want to say start small, but just broaden your perspective mm-hmm. and what can you do to make you feel comfortable with that person and be, be kind to yourself that not everybody has the same level of sexual desire as other people. Right. Right. Even if you are in sex work, that doesn't mean <laughs> necessarily anything about the level of desire that you have and your libido. Yeah, totally. I mean, going back on that note in terms of like being comfortable with your partner, mm-hmm. the next kind of question is kind of similar to that too. So it's more in the lines of dating. So like I have mm-hmm. had an episode on dating too, but this one's kind of specific too. So this person says, my dating life has been damaged because no one has been able to accept the line of work that I do. Mm-hmm. That's one statement. And what is the best timing to share that you are in sex work to a potential partner? This is a really, really good question. And I'm going to say as far as timing is concerned, that's really something that you have to kind of feel out. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people I have, I've worked with kind of lead with that right off the bat, you know, in the first or second exchange or on the first date, they mention it. Yeah. Others, choose not to disclose it until they get to know the person a little bit better. And I think it, it, if we look at it as relationships, one of the key components of good relationships by relationship experts and therapists Mm -hmm. is the concept of honesty, right? So at some point, if you're going to have a relationship with this person, maybe more than casual dating, then you should probably be, honest with them about, about what your profession is. Now I would encourage anybody, whether they're my clients or just somebody who asks me this question as in my friend group or friend circle, Mm -hmm. a few things. So you can embrace who you are and not be ashamed of who you are. Then that doesn't mean you have to be able to disclose to every single person you talk to on the first date. Like you don't even know if you're going to like this person. Right. So that doesn't not necessarily not sharing something right away. doesn't mean that you aren't comfortable, that you aren't confident that you have internalized stigma, anything like that. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that. It just means that you're, you're kind of being cautious. And I think that that's good. You can still embrace who you are and be cautious at the same time. Right. Now, what I think is, is tricky is trying to do some internal self-awareness and exploration and kind of gently explore what's behind your hesitation to disclose your career to somebody. Mm-hmm. Right. Is there, you know, one of the main themes that I see with some sex workers is internalized shame, disgust, um, yes. uh, just feeling of not being a good enough person or their job isn't legit there can be, maybe, maybe that's underneath what the hesitation is. Maybe it's going back to one of the um, other buckets, so to speak, that sometimes people come into therapy with, with the expectation of rejection. 
So just because you've had that rejection in dating before doesn't mean that every time is going to be that way. And maybe, I mean, this is just speculating, but what I can see happening is maybe you meet somebody that you really like and the stakes are high because you do get along with them so well. Mm -hmm. They haven't shown you any value or fundamental differences that you think would would make them possibly if that translates into their opinion on your career. Mm-hmm. You know, you haven't seen that and you really want it to work because you really like this person. Yeah. But you're supposed to tell them that you're a sex worker. So kind of looking behind the reasons why that fear or why that hesitation is there, I think is, is really something that, that is important. Just doing some self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like what, where, what are the roots? behind that kind of feeling and that emotion. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And and what I tell and say to all my clients, sex workers or not, they're working with people who are dating or in relationships or partnered. Inevitably, there is something that somebody is is hesitant to tell their partner, to disclose to their partner Mm -hmm. um, for a wide variety of subjects, right? Right. And I always you know, caution my clients to, first of all, explore what's behind that fear, like we just mentioned. But Mm -hmm. if that person has a bad reaction to what you're telling them, that's not for us to internalize and process that that other person's feelings. Their reaction is on them. That's their responsibility. Oh, yes. And it doesn't have to be that it's any indication, it, it was not any indication of our self-worth or our, the worth of our job or anything like that. It's that person doesn't have a positive response to what we're saying. Mm-hmm. In mind, do I want to be with somebody who has these fundamental differences of opinion than I do? Probably right. not. No. Yeah, exactly. Ask yourself that question. Like, I, I can I can really relate to this question because many, many years back, like right when I was transitioning from being a sugar baby over to transitioning out of, you know, like I didn't want to do that anymore. I started dating and it was just at the time when a, I participated in a, really, a reality show about sugar babying in my town and then like news articles came out. And it came to the attention of the person I was dating at the time. And he thought that I was being dishonest because I hadn't talked to him about that. Uh And it was just really awful because he chastised me for doing this line of work and also making assumptions that we didn't have the same fundamental values in terms of what it takes to, like, make a great relationship. And never consulted with me, just wrote me a long text message and broke up with me. And it was awful. It was awful. So really, and then that kind of damaged me a little bit too going forward. And I was single for like a while after that because it was just, and I I don't want to use the word traumatizing, but it kind of was because, and then I started, as you said, starting to internalize those feelings. You obviously you've dated since then. How did you get get through that? Honestly, I went through a really strong single phase and I really Uh learned to love myself and know what my self-worth was, know who I was and got to know myself better. So I did a lot of reflection during that time and 
I was at a point where I didn't know what my identity was. And I really just focused on um, healing myself and getting to know myself. And I made that a priority. And yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> that's how I kind of healed myself. So, but I wish I had, I wish I had a therapist back then <laughs> to have someone to talk about these issues. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I hear you on that, but you did, I mean, I think it's, you handled it in an excellent way and, um, were able to, to really focus on your strengths going mm-hmm. through a strong period of being single in your life and taking that and kind of using him, the experience with that person as a lesson learned and mm-hmm. that you don't want that kind of person in your life anyways. Exactly. That mm-hmm. all that rings true. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. I guess like the next question is a little bit different, but it's more so okay. competition between other creators and sex workers, say on like social media platforms like Instagram and TikTok, OnlyFans, and constantly comparing yourself to others and what that can do to your mental well being. Do you have any comments mm-hmm. on that? <laughs> I do. I kind of, I broadened it a little bit for how I was trying to conceptualize it. Mm -hmm. So I looked at it as the need for people and the desire for some people to compare themselves to others Mm -hmm. in general, not necessarily specific to any industry, but I think just as humans, we tend to naturally compare ourselves to others Um, (laughs) and it becomes a problem that it, uh, you know, is connected. and somehow impacts our self-esteem and our self-worth or our mental wellness, like anxiety and depression and just how good or bad we feel about ourselves. I think then it's when it kind of becomes a problem. And so there's a few things that I would recommend. I know I've mentioned this several times so far, but it's kind of essential to being a therapist and kind of what being in therapy is like. One of the things your therapist would always look or, or would work towards is where does that need to compare yourself to other people from? Mm-hmm. Right. So say, and, and I hate to go back to kind of the old psychoanalytical perspective of these things happen when you were a kid and it impacts how you relate to the future. But maybe that there is some truth to that for this one. Like maybe your parents always compared you to your sister or your brother and or you were in a, involved in different uh, extracurricular activities and your parents constantly compared you to other people. Like, oh, you're so much prettier than her. I'm sure that you'll win. Oh, yes. um, or you're much talented than that person. And our parents are trying to make us feel good, but that's not great. No. So <laughs> then what happens? Right? Then we're like 40 years old and have, in whatever phase we are in life, and we're comparing ourselves to others just all the time, just as a a natural way of life. So, first of all, looking and exploring why and where the need to compare comes from. Right. That's the first thing to do. And then I think... um, if you have that impulse to to compare to other people or other businesses or other um, people in the same industry, whatever the source of comparison is, see if you can turn it from a, not being something self-improvement, mm-hmm. meaning 
what does this person have? They're so successful. What does this person have that I'm lacking Mm. to being changing your mindset to be more self-compassionate and use it as a positive experience as a lesson learned. Right. Like what, what are they doing that not that I can do better, but what are they doing that I'm drawn to that maybe I can use that as a way to somehow in a very compassionate way, not that they're better than me, but Mm -hmm. maybe this is something that I can work on. Yeah. And, and just further myself, better myself. Um, so a, a period of, again, not self-improvement, but compassionately comparing and seeing what you can do and learn from that person, not necessarily change about yourself. Interesting. Yeah, that's a really, really cool perspective. I never thought about it that way. You're kind of like flipping the switch on that. So Yeah. 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 Like and then um, a really common theme that I've seen with any kind of comparison is just knowing and even if you have this knowledge and intellectually you know this like actually believing it that social media can just exaggerate um, perspectives of uh, that are kind of a false narrative. Oh yeah. All the time. Being perfection. Yeah. Being perfection. Um, feelings of oh my gosh this person has the perfect life look they're always going on trips and doing all these really cool things and their self-care they can they get their hair done all the time and they're always on point like they don't leave the house without makeup that kind of thing who knows what the source of comparison is but yeah (laughs) like that's not reality no so just keep bringing awareness to that and figuring out how you can best manage your feelings towards the social media driven society that we live in. And it's hard when it's part of your business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, you know, a lot of people um, rely on social media, business advertising and um, yes. networking and branding and things like that. So trying to find the balance between letting that control your life as far as comparisons right versus monitoring and regulating your usage just for business and not not trying to get caught up in all of that totally totally and then one more thing to say about that the fourth thing that I have to say I do I talk to um my clients all the time about their inner critic Mm -hmm. you know that voice that it tells them that they're not good enough or they're not pretty enough or they're not whatever. And actually trying to write down some of those thoughts, those critical thoughts we have about ourselves that are just automatic. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times we don't even notice we're thinking them. Okay. Like paying attention to that, writing down those thoughts, examining them or processing them, seeing where that even came from to begin with. Yeah. And then talking back to your inner critic like, okay, I might not be exactly like if the, if the thought is I'm not good enough, well, that's obviously not true. Um, that's very subjective. Maybe if your inner critic says I'm not good enough, you talking back to it or reframing that thought and saying, you know what, I might not be exactly where I want to be in my career or my life right now, Mm -hmm. but I am worthy of having a, a, a workplace or coworkers that treat me with respect and dignity. I'm worthy of having a partner 
that loves me and respects me and can communicate honestly and openly. I'm, I'm worthy of this. Mm-hmm. I, that's my inherent worth as a person. I'm absolutely good enough. So kind of talking back and trying to take those thoughts and replace them with what the real truth is, not the automatic negativity that sometimes we have with our inner critic. Right. I love that approach. And that's such a good exercise for for anyone to really do whether or not they're Uh in this line of work. So thank you for that. That's one, dealing with your inner critic. What about dealing with outer critics? So deal like obviously like with with um sex work we deal with a number of clients these people um we're usually outward facing we're very public so how do you deal with gaslighting and like trolls time wasters how do you deal with hurtful comments from clients and people on the internet and like haters that one can be really tricky and very problematic for a lot of people Mm -hmm. um this kind of goes into self-care when we talk about that in a little bit, if we if we get to that. But prioritizing your mental energy, mm-hmm. meaning how you're going to spend your mental energy. Right. Are you going to spend time looking at that critical comment or a troll that's trying to do what trolls do? Um, yes. And try, or the client that is trying to waste your time and wants to have 15 text exchanges or email exchanges before you even get the questions that you need answered. Like, are you going to devote your mental energy and attention to that? Or do you want to look at it as something more productive? So figuring out how to focus on what you can control and you can't control what they're saying. You can't Mm -hmm. control what other people are thinking about you. You can't control any of that. Right. But you can control how you respond to it. Yes, yes, yes. And so focusing, focusing on that and then not internalizing it, not letting things that people say become part internally part of who you are. Mm -hmm. So that, and then all of a sudden that outer critic becomes the voice of your inner critic too. Right. Yeah. So just paying close attention to that and doing the same, you know, activity as far as talking back to your inner critic with talking back to your outer critic, you know, writing down the thoughts. Mm -hmm. And if that's how you choose to use your time, you know, writing down those thoughts that you're struggling with and then writing down what the reality is. Right. Right. Oh, gosh. Okay. Yeah, that's those those are great. And these are things that we as sex workers go through on a daily basis you know (laughs) it can be really really exhausting and can take a toll on our emotional health and that kind of brings me to the next point too in terms of like our emotional well-being because as Uh sex workers and especially like in different um forms of sex work like full service or even being a sugar baby lots of client work Clients sometimes tend to unload a lot onto us, demanding our emotional yeah. time and our energy. And again, it's kind of similar to that first question too, but like how do you disconnect and how do you separate the two? You know, I think that's a really challenge for sex workers, but mm-hmm. also for just like in my profession to yeah. be a therapist. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We have, yeah. We have all these intimate conversations with people and who are very vulnerable with us and how do we 
prevent, um, it's called compassion fatigue, um, which is kind of one step uh, past burnout in my mind, where you're, it's oftentimes referred to as the cost of caring for others. So in your work, it is not necessarily what you signed up for, whereas for mm-hmm. therapists, we kind of know what we're getting into, right. if that makes sense. Yeah, that definitely makes yeah. sense. <laughs> like, we are not yeah. therapists, but sometimes, like, we act as one. <laughs> yeah, and they, yeah, and a lot of times it can be much less about sex mm-hmm. uh, or the you know, the act of, of sex work in general as opposed to what emotional needs the client is getting met through that. Right. Um and and what you're able to provide as far as support but um regardless you have to take care of yourself right yes yes. um and i call it self-care toolkits or compassion fatigue prevention kits okay um that i try to make with my clients and this is because i mean this impacts not just sex work but all but many um aspects of profession yeah whether it's teaching whether it's being an educator whether it's being a social worker even people who are servers and bartenders they have oh, yeah. very much a similar kind of uh, therapeutic role that's not really what they signed up for yeah but sometimes it becomes that <laughs> yes <laughs> so I think I think really learning how to take care of yourself is important so first of all you have to know what mental wellness looks like for you mm-hmm. like how do you know that mentally you're doing well this week versus not doing well a different week how do you how are you able to even have a check-in if somebody asks how you're doing mm-hmm. how can you even know what doing not well looks like compared to having a great week so you've got to kind of figure out what that means for you number one yeah um and then, then just looking at the things that you have control over versus what you don't have control over. And certainly for, for your, uh, for sex workers, you can set certain boundaries yes, and try to enforce those. And, and depending on where you work, I think you have more flexibility with what clients you take on, mm-hmm. but focus on what, what sorts of things you can do to control right. um, while you're at work. Um, and then when you're not working, thinking about how can I reduce stress in my other areas of my life? What can I do to take care of myself? How can I even maybe reduce stress at work? Mm -hmm. Focusing on what you can do. So I think a lot of times to prevent that compassion fatigue or that burnout, we just really have to be, um, proactive, and know the things that we have to incorporate in our lives that work for us that make us feel less stress. So that in times of stress, when we're presented with a stressful situation, or in some cases, uh, that's the stress that goes along with your job, mm-hmm. we can know how to take care of ourselves. Right. So to prevent getting to the whole burnout or compassion fatigue state, um, having a self-care plan toolkit kind of a go-to list of activities of what works for you I think it's really really important um and then trying to find the right balance of that that brings your mental wellness to if somebody were to ask you how you're doing on a scale of one to ten one being not great 
10 being awesome, mm-hmm. you have to figure out how to, how to get to that 10. Right. And while still having the job that there's some parts of it that you do love, yeah. um, usually or else you wouldn't be doing it. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, oh, wow. and I'm happy to talk a little bit more about self-care if we have time. Yeah, um, please do. Later. Yeah, no, if you want to go into it now, you're more than welcome to. Like, it's such an important aspect. Yeah, I think, you know, it's an important aspect of just mental wellness in general. Whether you're struggling with um, the aftermaths of of a traumatic event in your life, whether Mm -hmm. it's just inherently you have a stressful job that can lead to burnout, or maybe you you struggle with other mental um, wellness-related diagnoses, like clinical anxiety, clinical depression. Mm-hmm. There's so many different different things that could be going on in our lives just as humans, right? Yeah. Self-care is, is one of the things that I talk about with all my clients, um, no matter what they come to see me for. I think it's an important component, just looking after yourself. And there's things that I think people should try to do daily, and that varies based on the individual. Mm-hmm. Oh, and there's things that they should try to do weekly and making lists and having kind of different buckets or categories of things that you know that would go into taking care of yourself mm-hmm. and helping maintain your physical, emotional, mental well-being daily is really important. Right. So there's different things like how do you take care of yourself mentally? So let's say some of us have very busy minds. Um, Maybe you have (laughs) intrusive thoughts or rumination. You're a critical thinker. You're an overthinker. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Guilty Uh, as charged. How many of us can relate? Yeah. (laughs) So I call that, like, the mental aspect of self-care, right? And so be it good or bad, distraction tasks, um, things that keep our minds busy other than trying to analyze a situation or having intrusive thoughts and giving those thoughts energy and attention, to, um, taking our mental energy somewhere else. So doing distraction things like cleaning out your closet, organizing things, um, learning something new, whether it's learning and trying to learn a new language, reading something about a topic that you don't know, learning how to play an instrument, something that requires a lot of mental attention. Right. At least first. Even driving to explore a new place. Mm-hmm. I know with COVID, that's a little bit tough right now, for, <laughs> you know, depending on where you live. But yeah. Something like that, just giving yourself exposure to something that would mentally help distract your mind from the intrusive ruminating thoughts problem that you're thinking of. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, these are really, really simple ways that you can apply self-care. Yeah, accessible for sure. So there's there's kind of the mental bucket, as I call it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's other options, like even sensory options. So you think about things like aromatherapy, Sometimes people like to burn certain candles or have certain scents and fragrances that keep them peaceful. Um, Listening to um, kind of white noise or rainforest sounds or beach sounds Mm -hmm. that kind of trick our sensory experience. And this could fall along in the same line as um, hot showers or hot baths. Easy things that we can do for ourselves. 
being snuggly under a, a cozy blanket, you know, and watching something on whatever streaming service you use. Right. Um, even just going outside and breathing in fresh air, depending mm-hmm. on where you live, that yeah. might not be, you know, the outside air might not be great, but let's just say it is. Um, so even just going outside and breathing in the fresh air and paying attention to your senses, mm-hmm. I think can be really important for a lot of people. Super important. Wow. And then there's there's the physical options. And these are the things that I think a lot of people think about when they talk about stress management, anxiety management, things to help combat depression. Um, we think about exercise, right? Yes. And exercise can mean so many different things to different people. Right. Um, it's not like you have to go to the gym and do strength and cardio and do your whole circuit training and run 5Ks or marathons. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be doesn't have to be that extensive. For some people, it is, and yeah. that's great. That's awesome. But it doesn't have to be. It can be as simple as stretching. Mm-hmm. And we can call stretching part of yoga if you want to give a you know a label to it. Totally. Um, yeah, it could be you know going out for a walk around the neighborhood. It could be. Even things, when we think about physical options, even things like inactivity, meaning taking a nap. Sleep is so important for so many parts of our lives, but maybe that's something that can go into your your um, self-care plan. Totally. Getting, not just getting enough sleep, but taking a nap. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. These are such simple things that, like, you know, I might not think about, but, yeah, they to- it totally makes sense. It's- yeah, they really are. And, and there's a few other categories that are buckets that I like to talk about. Sure. Um, pleasure options, like things that uh, you might consider hobbies or things that bring you joy. So maybe you like to garden. Maybe mm. you like to cook. I know you yeah. like to cook, right, Steph? I do. <laughs> yes. A yes. lot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so that. Some people like to journal. Uh, Some people like to write art. Some people are very artsy, even if their art isn't great. um, Mm -hmm. They like to be creative with that. Sometimes people find immense joy from hanging out with their pets, not just cuddling and petting them, maybe taking, if you have a dog, taking your dog for a walk or um, a run or playing fetch or other, other activities with your pets. Um, that brings people pleasure. And then there's the emotional component of self-care, you know, really starting to feel your feelings and identifying what feelings you have Mm -hmm. and maybe where those feelings come from. So not neglecting that emotional part of life and you get some kind of, you start feeling some kind of way at work, but you can't really spend a lot of time on it now. So you brush it to the side and then never come back to it. Then all of a sudden you have this pile of feelings and they're bottled up and it blows up and um so just taking care of your feelings accepting that you feel how you feel a feeling is not a fact just like thoughts aren't facts Mm -hmm. they're they change with the wind um and and embracing your emotional options like okay if you crying that's fine it's not a bad thing to be emotional and cry let yourself cry if you're angry let yourself be angry as long as it's not destructive and hurting somebody else, let yourself be angry. Let yourself feel these big feelings that 
we want to push to the side and don't want to address always. Same thing for like happier emotions, like laughing, watching something on TV that's a comedy or whatever, and letting yourself laugh, letting yourself experience joy. So really kind of paying attention to your, the emotional component of your self care. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um, And then the last option that, that I think is important to some people, I know for me, it's, it's a big one for my emotional wellness. Okay. There's social options. Oh, yes. Big one. Yeah. Big one. Yes. And so what was impacted a lot with COVID are social options, right? Yes. And I think that's where uh, many people started struggling more with anxiety and depression and and the changes of the world and, I mean, the the social outlet that they had and held Mm -hmm. on to for so long for their whole life was, like, abruptly halted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And so that's really important for, to, if you're a social person to make yourself, even in our COVID society that we live in right now, figuring out ways to still feel connected to others. So mm-hmm. if you live in a place where, like I do, where restaurants are open and um, you feel safe to be around people going to lunch with a friend calling a friend on the phone or I'm, we have zoom fatigue right now or I oh, would say yes. zoom and Skype. Oh my gosh. Yes. That's, <laughs> uh, that's still an option, but definitely not great uh, substitute for in-person things. Yeah. But um, <laughs> even making yourself like join a book club or join a knitting club, like learn how to knit and Maybe they're still the clubs are still doing things online, but maybe eventually mm-hmm. they'll be back in person if that's something you're comfortable with. Right. And and even something as simple that is simple to me because this is my industry, but scary to a lot of people. Just joining a support group. Yeah. Um, I know that's that huge. on social media and on Reddit and other places, there's just tons of ways to connect um, so outside many. of a professional therapy building you go into to go to a support group. There's tons of support out there. You just got to know where to look for it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Alicia, these these options for self-care are are so great. And I'm so glad you brought them up and providing so many examples, too, because sometimes we we just think about it too hard. We're like, what is self-care? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, we have this really narrow view of what self-care is. And it comes in so many different forms and so many different themes, as you as you had mentioned. So I'm really glad that you brought that proponent because it's so important to how we heal. It, it really is. And, um, and there's tons of books, tons of resources out there. There's a sex therapist, sex and relationship therapist named Katie Bloomquist. Okay. Um, who does a lot with self-care um, for sex workers and where I got a lot of this information, but I kind of, uh, took things from many other books too. There's just so many resources out there and self-care means so many things to different people. But then when you think about the simple ways to practice self-care, like, Oh, maybe I should light a candle. Maybe I can go outside and get fresh air. Maybe I could call a friend. You know, there's little simple things that don't cost money that you can do. Oh my gosh, so, so great. And hopefully some listeners out there, if, if we're needing some self-care, hopefully this will give you some ideas in terms of like how you can apply that. So thank you so much for that. I'm, I'm really glad that we talked about that. 
too. It's so needed. (laughs) I guess we'll we'll switch gears to continue with a couple of the other questions that came in that are a bit on the heavier side too, which obviously for me, self-care would definitely be needed for these, Uh um, I guess, categories. So next topic is more so along the lines of anxiety. So Uh some people are mentioning like, oh, like beginning to work at a club for the first time or going back to the Uh club or dealing with mismanagement and exploitation. Uh So how would you tackle that? So... I think the thing to understand with anxiety specifically um, is that it's a completely normal feeling. Like all of us experience anxiety in some way, but there are certain things like transitioning back into the club or and back into more of a setting where you're going to be working with people um, face-to-face on a larger scale, especially now as we're getting to different phases for the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Um, Some people are going that work in offices are having to go back and navigate how to, how to have interpersonal skills in an office again with their coworkers. No different. um, Just the anxiety that comes along with changing your life or the structure of your workplace is, I think it can be pretty across the board for people. So thinking about anxiety, and I think it's important to distinguish if somebody has anxiety that is part of more disordered impact on their life, that's a a pervasive, maybe a generalized anxiety Mm -hmm. condition, something like that, or if it truly is just like the everyday anxiety that we have to learn how to navigate um, as as people. Regardless, I think it's important to know what kind of anxiety you're, you're facing. Mm-hmm. And if it's something that's more prevalent as opposed to just situational for clubs are starting to open back up, I'm going to have to interact with more people in person or right. deal with different workplace dynamics um, that might be, or conditions that might be less than ideal. How am I going to do this? Oh my gosh, I'm so anxious. Right. The, the bottom the bottom line with anxiety is that anxiety is fueled by uncertainty. Yes. And so we, as people want to know for certain what is going to happen. Mm-hmm. We, and we can't know. No. We think about yeah. None of us, I mean, I'm not going to say none of us are psychic because <laughs> anybody that's listening out there that does have those abilities and skills, I, my hat goes off to you. Yes. But you know, <laughs> But I have anxiety, and I am not psychic, and I can think about something for three days and let my thoughts consume me and have a plan A, B, and C yeah. for what might happen. But at the end of the day, I might have just wasted three days of mental energy and being consumed yeah. to try to figure out what am I going to do if this happens and this happens and this happens to give myself this false sense of control. And maybe it lessens your anxiety a little bit. But at the same time, you really don't have any more data to figure out what's going to happen and give yourself that certainty that you did on day one than you did on day three of thinking about this and analyzing this. So I think the bottom line to anxiety treatment and management is figuring out how to embrace uncertainty, Mm -hmm. how to be okay with not knowing and how to know that the answer most of the time is going to be, I don't know. 
Yeah. Because we don't know. Yeah. And that's something my clients, any of my clients that might listen to this later, they're going to be like, oh my gosh, she says that at least 15 times every <laughs> session. <laughs> it's the truth. It's the truth. We, the answer is always going to, is usually going to be, I don't know. Yeah. There's just not a lot of certainty in life. And so figuring out how to make yourself uncomfortable or how to make yourself comfortable with something that is as uncomfortable as uncertainty, right. which fuels our anxiety. And it's this whole vicious cycle. It totally Dissecting is. that. Yeah. 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 So kind of taking a step back, dissecting that looking at the the thoughts that you're having about something which can fuel our feelings including anxiety and and just it's a whole cycle of our thoughts and our feelings and emotions and then what do we do we take action and right. sometimes that's ruminating on a situation for three days to get a plan a b and c and yet at the end of the day we still don't know yeah so that's that's figure out how you can be okay with anxiety and uncertainty and the answer of, I don't know, and still mm. be present in the moment and get your day, go about your day and get your job done the best yeah. way you can, I think is my best advice for, for starting to unravel anxiety. And that's a process. That is a skill. It's easier for others, for some than others, but um, it's something that you've got to really practice every single day of your life. Totally. No matter what the anxiety is about. Yeah, like there's just things that you won't be able to control. And being okay with that is like a skill and something that isn't isn't learned overnight. But as you said, it's something that you can Mm -hmm. definitely practice. I know I am definitely always practicing that (laughs) because I can be a very anxious person. So... Yeah, those, those are great things. Yeah, it's, I mean, anxiety um, affects a lot of us, I feel. Uh-huh. So, uh, like, all the methods you had mentioned there in regards to anxiety, I think they're all very, very, very applicable. So, thank you. Um, Absolutely. There's a couple more heavier topics here in terms of sexual assault and abuse, either by lovers or partners or even by family members we've had a couple episodes on trauma um by clients we've also talked about rape as well on the episode a couple on the on the podcast a couple times how do you how do you tackle these heavy 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 topics you know i think that no matter if a sexual assault or a rape happened one day ago, or if it happened to somebody when they were a kid 20 years ago, mm-hmm. the, the, the way that it, incompa- that it can impact us as humans just living our lives is huge, oh, whether it's interpersonal skills, whether it's things that we're triggered by, yes. maybe it causes the symptoms that go along with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. The, I mean, it, it just can have a long-lasting impact on our life. Um, mm-hmm. And... I think looking at this from kind of the advice or the the sequence of things that I would give to people who ask me for advice on how do I how do I process this? How do I respond to this thing that happened to me? Again, whether it was yesterday or whether it was twenty years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, I think 
realizing that what you're feeling or what you're experiencing, what you're thinking is normal. Like there is no right or wrong way to respond to this. It sucks. It happened to you. It's shitty. It is not your fault. Even if you keep having thoughts that it was your fault or that you could have done something differently. And we'll talk about that in a second. Yeah. It's how you're feeling is completely normal. Everybody responds to things differently. Mm-hmm. So sometimes I talk to people who say, you know what? I just haven't, haven't cried and I'm like moving on with my life and I don't feel numb. I still feel feelings, but like, I'm not depressed. It's not that I can't get out of bed. I'm not scared to be around people that are like my attacker. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, then, then they say, what's wrong with me? Maybe it really didn't happen. And and I'm always like, stop, woo, let's have a big stop sign here. Yeah. Everybody wants to things differently. Stop comparing yourself to other people. Yes. <laughs> and then, yeah, so that's, that's the number one thing. Just know that what you're experiencing and how you're reacting is normal. There's not anything, there's not one right or wrong way to respond to sexual trauma okay. or abuse. Um, and then the second thing is, so if you keep it a secret, which many people do as they go throughout their life, secrets kind of take control of us, right? So inherently, if we think that we have to keep something a secret, depending on what it is, that feeling of, of blame and guilt and shame goes along with that secret. Mm -hmm. So if we think we can't tell somebody or we're scared to tell somebody, it just fuels the internalized blame and guilt that that oftentimes survivors of sexual trauma, assault, abuse have. So figuring out who you can tell that you trust about mm-hmm. it is huge. If you don't talk about it, you can't. If you don't acknowledge the truth that it happened, you can't feel. Right. So yeah. Whether that's a crisis hotline, whether it's a trusted friend, whether it's someone, whether it's a therapist, whether it's somebody, maybe if you're part of a religious group, maybe if it's somebody part of that group that you trust, Mm -hmm. somebody that you trust that you can actually tell. And then continuing to acknowledge and process your feelings. Oftentimes, guilt, shame, anger, there's so many different feelings that that can fuel the ways that we think about ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so it's really kind of changing your perspective Let's say you have a thought that, why didn't I stop it? Or why didn't I leave? Right. Or something that's, that's internal, that's really guilt and shame for you, having it happen. Mm-hmm. Maybe changing that thought every time we have that thought, similar to our inner critic discussion that we talked about, but every time we have that thought, instead of, why didn't I stop it? Maybe changing it to, you know what? I did the best I could under extreme circumstances. And I survived. And obviously, if I could have stopped it or done something differently, I would have. But this is how I responded in this circumstance. And I did everything right. And and similarly, if you're having self-blame thoughts of, oh, I shouldn't, maybe this happened at a party and... I shouldn't have gone to that party. I shouldn't have gotten so drunk. I shouldn't have worn whatever I wore. While these are stereotypes, these are still images that society, messages that society sends us and that mm-hmm. people think sometimes, depending on the scenario. Yeah. So instead, 
you know, when you have those kind of thoughts, say, you know what, how much I was drinking is irrelevant. Yep. The circumstances are irrelevant. The responsibility of not being assaulted is not on me. It's on the person that assaulted me. Yes. They need to feel guilt for it. They need to feel shame. They need to take accountability for it. I didn't do anything wrong. And I think just really continually talking to yourself in a much kinder approach, reframing the thoughts that you have goes on with processing your feelings. Totally. Um, And definitely working with a therapist who can help you with things like flashbacks or triggers or unsettling memories that can go along with PTSD, but also people can have that without necessarily having all the components of PTSD. Working with a, a therapist that is a trauma specialist is huge, I think. Yes. Um, and they can really help you navigate some of this. And, and being kind to yourself, because especially if this is something that happened a long time ago, you've carried this around for years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you're resilient, you've survived, but it's impacting your life somehow. And so you want to address it. But be kind to yourself. 20 years of feelings aren't going to be able to, nobody has a magic wand. We can't fix it No. or resolve your feelings or symptoms in like two weeks. It's not going to work. No. So being kind and taking little steps. And the same goes with clients that I work with that have anxiety and depression and say they feel stuck. Mm-hmm. Just taking little steps. Like you didn't, you spent Maybe you had anxiety and depression your whole life, and now you're here, you're 40, and guess what? We can't get you unstuck right away. Mm -hmm. We've got to take it step by step, and all of a sudden, you'll get your life to somewhere where you want it to be, which is mental mental wellness, you know, and a healthy life overall. Same thing with the trauma, the processing the trauma of any kind of sexual-related assault, abuse, violence. These are really, really great responses here. And I, I do thank you so much for that. Like, it's it's just incredible. And a lot of us, unfortunately, do have a history. And I don't want to make any assumptions, but I, I'm ta- talking for me personally. I have had uh, to deal with some of that and deal with that internalization. And it, it can be really, really hard. So one of the last points here, I guess, is on a broader scope too, but it is along the lines of trauma, along with what you said too. So the response might be similar, but this person is asking, how do you deal with trauma in terms of like systemic discrimination and colonialism uh-huh. and racism? How do you deal with that? And especially it, it's so relevant too nowadays with a lot of the events that have happened in the past year, even the most recent um events too in terms of like the rise of like anti-Asian hate that's been going on that's been prevalent in North America Uh how do you how do you assist clients with with dealing with these hard topics you know I think it it kind of goes back to the processing of and and not even processing just identification of feelings Mm -hmm. and the messages that we have about ourselves that we get from interactions that we've had with others, whether it's systemic racism or um, 
institutionalized discrimination, all of these things can impact many of us and my clients for sure. Yeah. But kind of deconstructing that. So it's, it's almost like an unlearning process. Right. So we, yeah, you have to kind of know where these messages came from and how much of it you internalize and take with you that can contribute to things like self-esteem and confidence and um, anxiety, depression, just mental wellness, your well-being overall. Mm-hmm. Let's look and see where those things came from. And, and I'm, I'm looking at it from kind of a micro level, individualized level, not necessarily a broader macro policy law mm. Uh, perspective, which some therapists certainly, you know, that would certainly be something you could explore in therapy, Yeah. but starting with how it impacts you individually and then what you can do to feel empowered, what can you do to unlearn and teach others and respond to others in a different way? I think focusing on that and focusing on what we can control is, is huge into our mental wellness overall. Wow. Yeah. Great, great, great responses. Um, I know we're running so much on time here, but I, I'm enjoying so <laughs> much like this conversation. Um, I just want to note too. a note too on um, substance abuse and addiction and your thoughts on that. Yeah. You know, I think that that is something that so many people, no matter what industry they're in, mm-hmm. people in general just face issues with addiction, um, and substance abuse. And, and I encourage people that are struggling, um, to really find a specialist and find a program that Mm -hmm. works for them. So therapists that specifically works with people that are struggling with those same issues. Um, and oftentimes, you know, we're, people are like onions, right? We get the substance abuse might be the thing that is impacting us the most. And that's kind of our outer layer. Yeah. But that maybe we, maybe we do a harm reduction approach, which people that are going to school for therapy or therapists will know what I mean. Meaning instead of, uh, you know, looking at how somebody can live their life with these substances and that do the least harm. Right. Right. Or kind of a tiered opposite of a hierarchy approach but so how do you how can you reduce the harm caused in your life by these substances and that would be something that a substance abuse counselor or professional could um could help with with. and there's all different approaches and i don't want to i'm not an expert in in um addiction and abuse substance abuse but um so i don't want to speak too much to that but Mm -hmm. looking for somebody competent and Finding somebody who, um, just based on whether it's their website or their um, profile on Psychology Today or similar um, resources that connect therapists with their patients, you know, just looking at the words that they use, looking at the types of treatment philosophy that they have, mm-hmm. and making sure that it matches what, what you feel like might, that might help you. Definitely. Um, so I think that that's important is finding somebody that you're, that's willing to work with you and meet you where you are. That's the most important thing, not oh have pre, preconceived notions of 
what you need to do for this problem because we are complex. Like I said, there's there's layers. We're onions. Yeah, 100%. Like, and I'm glad um, you brought that up too. And I'm sorry to the viewer or the audience member that we can fully answer your question, but maybe I'll just have to bring on another expert to do that, (laughs) to answer that question. Because, I mean, like, there's so much to cover here. And and, um, you mentioned earlier, before we recorded, uh, May is actually Mental Health Awareness Month. So I'm really glad that I was able to get you here to kick off this month and to speak about these topics that are so applicable and so inherent to so many of us in the sex industry, but also anyone, whether you're in the sex industry or not, like there's a lot of us that are going through things and we need more education on how to better deal with our trauma and our challenges. So this has been incredible and I feel like I need to do like a a continuation episode on this. (laughs) Like there's so much to cover. There's so much. Oh, there's so much that I want to say. I know. Um, uh, we might have to do a part two. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, if I may, real quick, just yeah. to, the, to the point of mental awareness. Yes. Um, there are some things that, some resources that I've found Good. specifically for sex workers. Oh, that, perfect. Yeah, that might might be helpful. And I'm not affiliated with any of these organizations that I'm going to be mentioning. So okay. I only know what I know based on research and what some of my clients have kind of shown me about these resources. But sure. there is one um, website, it's called um, pineapplesupport.org. Okay. Okay. Pineapple like the fruit. Oh, yum. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And they offer, they work with mental health professionals um, to connect sex workers with an appropriate therapist and for either low-cost or affordable mental health care for a certain number of sessions. Yeah, so that's I so think cool. that's a huge one. I don't know if it's region-specific or if it's only in the U.S. or if it's in other countries, too, but okay. that's that's an option. Thank you. Perfect. And then, of course, the Sex Workers Outreach Program, that is worldwide, mm-hmm. and it has... Oftentimes, the local chapters will have a list of sex affirmative or sex work affirmative therapists. Perfect. That can connect you to. Yeah. And then the last one um, is just looking on listings of therapists on the Psychology Today website. Okay. They recently added, I think maybe four or five years ago, added different badges that therapists can pick. So one of the badges that we can choose is sex worker allied cool yeah yeah i've got that and you can use that as a search criteria for to find therapists in your area that are sex positive allies for sex workers and and any minority group really but um i think that that would be a good way to empower all of your listeners to be able to reach out to take the first step to reach out for a therapist that can help them with some of their mental wellness that's um, awesome. Oh, that's so great because sometimes there's just so much like apprehension when we're trying to find sex-friendly or sex worker-friendly therapists or even like accountants and like just help in terms of like resources. So this helps as like a really great filter and like it enables us to really, really feel safe and have that security. So I'll be plugging all those links in the show notes below if you haven't checked it out already. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, I guess, like, there are just a few 
a couple questions that came in that I didn't loop into the episode, but I've left to the end. So I guess we'll just put them all in one because they're kind of similar. This is from, um, a, I guess, uh, a grad student studying therapy and counseling. So what are some ways to approach speaking about diverse sex experiences that is approachable and supportive to clients? And is there any specific language to know about and any specific questions that you have to ask? I think that's an excellent question. And yeah. um, one of the things that I cover in my human sexuality class and, and what I'm sure that this person will have learned about in their in their counseling program mm-hmm. is that the client's the expert, right? Mm-hmm. So looking at approaching sex topics that, you know, in the U.S. especially, sex can be just so t- taboo to talk about. Yeah. But just having language on whether it's website or what, when that person is practicing, having affirmative language on their website or having different components of a questionnaire that maybe ask gender and sexuality and have multiple labels or boxes that you can choose, not mm-hmm. just gender, male, female, for instance. Um, yeah. But the same for relationship type. Totally. Like, let's, let's look at alternative relationship um, patterns that are not necessarily single or partnered. There's lots of other choices in between. So I think just kind of incorporating that into your, when you start practicing and working with clients into your forms and documentation and websites and other, other things that you put out is really important. Mm-hmm. But right. if a client says, thing, says something that you're not quite sure what they mean, or you've heard the term before and say, you know, I've heard that term before, but terms that can mean different things to different people. Can you tell me what it means to you? Right. They, the, the clients never want to feel like they have to educate their therapist completely. Right. Um, so many of my clients, I would say like 90% come to me specific to gender and sexuality mm-hmm. of that subtype of my practice that they had, they spent too much time having to basically teach their therapist about their lifestyle or right. about their gender. And similar with sex work, like you, yeah. you should be able to, as a, as a clinician, even if you've never been a sex worker, that doesn't mean that you don't take time to research, that you don't take time to learn, that you don't listen to podcasts like this one. Um, <laughs> to, you've got to kind of understand your your client mm-hmm. as so much as you can on that end, and you choose language that is that is affirming. Yes, and that's what kind of depends on what your what your topic base is, but you choose affirming language. And you know enough where you can let the client be the expert that they should be. And they don't have to explain to you, for instance, gender, that gender is a social construct. Yes. Like they, they don't have to get down to, to that baseline level. They can talk about gender in other terms and that you'll understand it, but also be curious as to what it means to them. Right. So that's my advice as far as that. Excellent advice. Excellent. <laughs> but... <laughs> Before I let you go, Alicia, where can we find you? Yeah, so I have a website called counselingwithalicia.com. Okay. And you can also, on my website, I think it links to my Facebook and Instagram. I don't do Twitter. I'm not really that great with um, with social media overall Um, (laughs) and using that for my business. But you can definitely go to my website, um, counselingwithalicia.com, and 
there's a link on there to contact me if you want more information. If you're in an area in the U.S. or outside of the U.S. and you even want to just reach out for referrals, I can certainly look at my therapy networks and see what we can find that might be close to you to help you. Or even if you just have a general, if you're a student and you have a general question about something relating to becoming a therapist or a social worker or a sex educator, feel free to, to send me an email and I promise I will respond. It might not be instantaneously, but it will be, <laughs> you know, within a couple business days. I'm pretty good at responding to emails. Awesome. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been so insightful and I've learned so much from you and I'm just sad that we can't talk about more because again, there's there's just so much, so much to uncover, but I guess I'll just have to get you back on. (laughs) Yes, we can. I would, I would love to do a part two and and get some more details in here and what people are, are struggling with. Oh Um, Yeah. Like, there's so much yeah. that we haven't talked about either. So, like, we're, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll definitely keep you up to date on the feedback for the episode. But, yeah, I guess yeah. that's it for today. But it is Stripped by Sia on Instagram. It's available on all podcast platforms. So don't forget to, like, rate, share, review, and subscribe. And if you want to get at me on my personal Instagram, it is Sia Steph. And I will catch everyone in for another episode next week. Stay tuned. Bye. You're listening to Strip by Sia. Hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia. Artwork by Maria Bellandorama. Music by Ted D. And photography by Ian Dabern. Oh, <laughs>